I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys unpacked CSIS's recent event with Ambassador Catherine Tai, the U.S. Trade Representative. Plus, we'll discuss the state of the current U.S.-China bilateral trade and economic relationship. And we'll predict the next steps the Biden administration might take and provide recommendations for a path forward. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we're bringing the band back together after a long summer apart. I guess I'm back. I, you guys have always been here. I haven't, I, I left you. I feel badly, but I got a lot done this summer. We're glad you're back. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad to be back. We never went away, Andrew. We've been here the whole time. <laughs> I know. That's, that's the thing. I'm the one who jumped ship. The trade guys are everlasting and have shown that they can soldier on without any involvement from me. But it is great to be back with you. Scott, you look fantastic. I gather North Carolina is treating you well. So far, so good. We're enjoying every day. So uh, all, all couldn't be better. Thank you. Do you, have, do you have furniture yet or are you still a supply chain victim? Coming piece by piece, but uh, uh, but supply chains have been strained, and I can testify to that. We have places to sit down and sleep, and to to prepare food. So we got the basics. So Bill, you notice the difference. Scott looks happy and relaxed, and you and me look like the typical angry people in Washington wearing suits. Yes. Well, I'm angry because I'm wearing a suit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We need that. You know, there, there's got to be a post-COVID office dress code. But I don't think that's happened in D.C. yet. It's happened in other parts of the country. Here in D.C., official Washington, we're still all pretty buttoned up. Hasn't happened at CSIS for sure. That is for sure. Well, Bill, you had a big day today because this morning, October 4th, you had U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Catherine Tai come speak at CSIS. It was before, looked like to me, about 60 people or something like that in the audience. Everybody looked comfortable and socially distanced. We are, as you both know, and as our listeners probably know, CSIS is a fully vaccinated facility. Any visitors who come here also have to show proof of vaccination. But I gather it was a pretty successful event. Um, you had over 2,500 people watching it live. It will also be available uh, on demand at CSIS.org for anybody who missed it, as well as a transcript. So I, I want to put it to you, Bill. What, what was the main thrust of Ambassador Tai's remarks. She has said, and she said on Twitter, the U.S.-China trade and economic relationship is one of profound consequence. So we know that she thinks it's important, but like what what beyond that did we hear this morning? Well, not, not a huge amount, to be honest with you. I think she said two things that were newsworthy. One, that she's going to restart conversations with them. Couldn't nail her down on when or exactly with whom. Probably uh, Liu He, who's been the counterpart for this for, for a number of years. That's the Chinese vice premier. Exactly. Yeah. And that she intends, in the, first, in the beginning, she intends to press them on their commitments in the uh, Trump phase one deal that they have uh, not yet met. She was not very specific about which commitments 
they haven't met. Actually, parallel to this, Secretary Vilsack made some comments at a different venue where he talked about pressing them on the $5 billion in agriculture commodities they have yet to purchase, and that on the 57 specific agriculture commitments that they made, uh, they apparently have implemented 50 of them, which is not bad, but there are seven to go. So pretty clear that there's some things out there that are undone. And so, you know, part one of her policy really is they're going to spend time enforcing what Trump negotiated. I don't think she particularly wanted to hear that, but that's what it amounted to. He, he negotiated the commitments, and they want to make sure the Chinese honor them. So there was that. The second thing she announced that was noteworthy for business was that she's going to restart the tariff exclusion process, uh, most of which expired at the end of last year. So if you are a victim of one of the tariffs that Trump imposed, you will now again be able to come in to USTR and ask that you be excluded from those tariffs because your item is either, uh, I think the criteria generally are either unavailable anywhere else or there's uh, you know some other pressing reason why you should be able to get it uh, from China. She was not very clear, and it's probably early to say, you know, how she's going to operate that. Uh, when Lighthizer was doing it, uh, her predecessor, they didn't approve all that many, but uh, some were approved, uh, but then they all, uh, not all of them, most of them expired at the end of the year. But it looks like that process is back. I think business was hoping for a more positive statement about getting rid of the tariffs, and she didn't make that. It was clear that uh, they're going to continue on. Scott, were there any nuances that I missed that you picked up on? Well, no, I think you've got a pretty good summary of it. I, I feel a little like Waldorf and Statler in the in the balcony of the Muppet Show Theater and commenting on an event that just happened, sort of instant analysis. Well, and you guys, I, I mean, to be fair, like, you know, those guys were your Doppler gangers, you know, the Muppets who... <laughs> Statler and Waldorf in, in, were my favorites. Close to their age. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> in any case, look, I, I think you've got it about right. Uh, clearly that... Uh, they have different ideas than the Trump policy. And, and there's a long tradition in both business and, and government jobs to, to blame things on your predecessor, at least for a while. In this case, uh, that always has a pretty short uh, expiration date. But in this case in particular, they're basically continuing the Trump policies with regard to China in terms of enforcing the deal without much else to, to offer. And I do think she, we should credit the, the notion they, they're bringing back the exclusion process because there are items that are used by American producers that are exclusively available uh, from China or not available in the U.S. at all. And you just make U.S. products uncompetitive by maintaining tariffs on those items. However, there's a question about where the policy is going. And this, I think, where, you were, where you're going with your comments was, do they, have they not yet got, developed the policy or are they just not saying? And I couldn't sort it out. Perhaps you have an idea. My sense, not just from what she said, but from other conversations, is that I think they're divided over what to do, which in this particular case, a lot of people are. I think they're divided between the people who want to continue to negotiate and hope that something will develop, and the people that think that's a waste of time, that China's not going to change. I mean, it's one thing to say we're going to negotiate over promises unkept, 
uh, because that's fair game. I mean, they did say that we, they were going to do these things, and if they haven't done them, it's fair to go back and say, you haven't done them, uh, let's get moving. But the other part of it is what about the things that they've never agreed to do, the things that Trump pushed into phase two, the things that uh, Obama wanted to talk to them about, the things that, uh, you know, the Bush administration, it, it was about being a constructive stakeholder. It's about, uh, you know, getting rid of subsidies, moving toward a market economy, reining in their state-owned enterprises. They've always refused to do that. And I'm, I'm certainly in the group that thinks they're going to continue to refuse to do that. And what we saw today was kind of an effort to, to walk a very fine line be say, between saying, yeah, we're going to talk to them, but we're not very optimistic about what's going to happen. Maybe we can get them to keep their word, which would be, you know, significant. But when it comes to uh, these other bigger things, uh, I don't think there's a lot of optimists in the inf- in the administration about uh, that we can simply have, you know, try to have the same dialogue that the last three administrations had unsuccessfully, and this time make it work. Um, but then I'm kind of left hanging. So if that's, if that's where you come out, what do you do next? And I, I think their answer was, is the running faster part of the equation that we've talked about. It's build back better. It's make our industries more competitive. It's, you know, it, it's sort of implicitly recognize that they're not going to do what we want. And let's put ourselves in a much better position to go ahead anyway. Let me ask you guys this way. So President Biden has frequently criticized President Trump's 18-month trade war with China. He called, he's called it erratic. He's called it counterproductive. But now we're eight months into Biden's presidency, and we really still don't have, as you guys have pointed out, a lot of policies to point to. So isn't there a way of making this a bipartisan thing for the Biden administration, um, considering that both Republicans and Democrats also are aligned that we need to counter China in a strong way? Too late. I think the Republicans have decided to make this a campaign issue. Democrats are soft on China. Biden in particular is soft on China. If you listen to the four or five Republican senators that are running already for president, that's one of their main talking points. And I think it I think the Biden people believe that, you know, one of their problems is that anything they do here is going to be criticized as inadequate, undermining our security and giving away the store. So, yeah, it would be nice if it would be bipartisan because both, both sides are very skeptical of China. But I think the, uh, the opposition is turning it into a, uh, into a partisan issue already for the next election. Well, and uh, to the point you made earlier, Bill, it's not obvious what you actually do to get different or better results. Because we've kind of exhausted the notion of uh, sort of these comprehensive preferential or free trade agreements, even with blocks of nations. We've in some ways exhausted the multilateral system as a, as a rules-making and dispute settlement uh, entity. Uh, and it's, it's not clear what to do besides sort of the uh, bilateral brute force approach that uh, is being you know, con- continued at this point. I, I got the sense that uh, Ambassador Tai is not comfortable with it, and she's not, she's not prepared to say it's still under review. Uh, but she did have a, a nice turn of phrase uh, instead of not be uh, policies being under review, she said we're working on plans. I think that's like my southern friends who say they're fixing to do something. <laughs> for me, it's yeah. You may be right that we've lost the moment for bipartisanship, but we also it's not obvious what is actually going to work in this situation because we know a lot of things that don't. Well, and the, cr- the critics have not come up with a better idea. 
Right. I mean, the Republicans are sitting there saying, you know, Biden's terrible, but they don't they haven't offered anything aside from irrational proposals that border on embargoing them. Was there anything that Ambassador Tai said that you guys were not expecting to hear? I was disappointed in her comment about market access. I was not surprised. But one of the things that's distressed me as their policy has developed is they don't seem very interested in market access in general, uh, which is kind of the the fundamental point of a trade agreement, which is to have more trade and more market access. And they don't seem to care about that. I mean, mostly she talks about labor and environment. Uh, and I asked her about market access to uh, more market access with China. And it was pretty clear that that's not a priority. That disappointed me. Well, you know, she had good, she had good responses to your probing there, Bill, you, your questioning. She quickly acknowledged the need for contestable markets and the fact that there were American firms who did want to compete and they ought to have the uh, equal footing to do that. And she also, I thought was importantly mentioned, the, the, the know-how uh, that's embedded in manufacturing, that, that innovation comes from making things. And uh, so she, she got close to it at a couple of points. What it's not connected to, in my view, is, an, is a sort of an optimistic message about the future, this, this, this sort of, you know, where we're going and it's a better place. You know, that, the, key to, the key to most political messaging is to have some shared vision of the future. And what they have not gotten to, often it's something like economic growth or, you know, new opportunities, something like that. That was missing from the message and is fairly consistently. So I don't know if that's just the trade message or the total economic, international economic program, but she had, she had useful illustrations of your remarks, Bill, but she didn't generate her own idea of where this was going and how she could get people to follow along. Bill? I agree with that. I just think that it, it's not been a priority for them, and they're gradually coming to terms with the fact that, it, that it's a priority for a lot of other people. And, and you get that from Vilsack, you know, because when Vilsack, Secretary Vilsack talks about China, what he talks about is all the stuff they're going to buy. Now, of course, he's only talking about agriculture, but that's, that's his portfolio. But he's very clear that market access is an important element of this. She had a golden opportunity, Scott, and which was the Boeing aircraft, uh, right. which she didn't mention. I mean, Secretary Raimondo, I guess last week, pointed out that one of the main reasons why China hasn't met its purchase targets is they haven't bought any airplanes, because which are all big ticket items. And I was a little surprised she didn't flag that as an example. Well, look, uh, uh, Secretary Vilsack is former Governor Vilsack. Uh, governors of farm states know how to articulate those goals in fairly clear, coherent ways. And uh, so that I think there is a growth message in there somewhere. And I think if she could capture it for the entire international economic frontier that the administration is, is pursuing, I think she'll be able to attract people to the vision that so far has just, you're right, Bill, degenerated into, uh, into partisanship and, and uh, attacks. Yeah, I've, that's a good way to look at it. One of the things we've talked about before here is that she is, to her credit, I think they're focused on the benefits of trade agreements, but their concern has been almost entirely on the distribution of the benefits, basically making sure the workers get their share, uh, which is important. We've not done a very good job of that, and it's important to focus on it. But the focus on that is, is so intense that sometimes the creation of more benefits kind of gets lost. Uh, and if you're not creating more benefits, then there's nothing to distribute. Right. Well, as you guys have said, 
an integral part of the administration's trade policy hinges on its Build Back Better agenda. If the packages on the Hill are passed, does that mean that the Biden administration will consider pursuing new agreements? You know, I was going to ask her that. That's a really good question. And then I realized that, that she would get out of it by saying, well, they haven't passed yet. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so ask me later. I was hoping, you know, uh, because of the, the, the previous September 27th deadline, that we'd have a bill by now and we could say exactly what you just said. So now that, you know, the domestic agenda is complete, can we move on to trade? But it's not complete. So I didn't ask. So what do you think is going to happen, both of you? Look, I think uh, that uh, Ambassador Tai is going to represent us well when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship, that she will remain pragmatic and try to get what she can out of that. What I hope happens, and I, I, I think she can do this, I expect her to, but I certainly hope she does, is that she formulates a strategy for the next step, uh, that we, we have a clear plan about what to go do. One of the things that I've always enjoyed working with uh, with trade people and uh, the, the office of USTR is there's a level of pragmatism in their daily work. They're, they're looking to solve problems. And if uh, she's a person who has done that in her past career, I think she said a lot this morning about that that's her intention is to go go fix something. And as she engages, that's, that's at least where I hope she goes with it and to stay very practical and deliver results because nothing succeeds like those kinds of actions. I don't want to be overly critical or anything, but one of the things that really stood out to me is that Ambassador Tai said, and I quote, as our economic relationship with China evolves, so too must our tactics to defend our interests. And then she didn't really lay out the tactics, although if she had, would that have been telegraphing too much? I mean, that that's where I'm a little confused here. Well, that's, I think that's, partly because I'm not sure they've agreed on, on tactics. I mean, there are a lot of tools that everybody knows about, you know, there, um, and uh, there's the anti-dumping duties and countervailing duties, which actually have been used fairly effectively against China in, in selected cases. They're, they're kind of micro-remedies, you know, you go after specific situations and you deal with them. It's not a, a, a macro change of policy. Trump used Section 301, which was intended originally to, you know, force a negotiation and then you take action if you can't succeed in the negotiation. He reversed that, which is take action first and then have the negotiation, which you know, hasn't worked out very well, but uh, the tariffs which he imposed are in place. And I rather expected that uh, she would announce that they're going to launch a new Section 301 investigation, because that's a, a fairly powerful tool. And it's the tool that you need to use if you want to make any adjustments in the existing tariffs, or if you want to go farther. Uh, and she didn't do that. And I think that that wasn't an accident. It was a fairly studied decision not to do that. And I guess maybe it's because they simply, at this point, they don't want to start the dialogue off on an adversarial note. And announcing that you're conducting a new investigation, you know, and then asking Liu He if he wants to have a talk, is probably not the best way to go. I think her plan is let's have the talk, maybe multiple talks, and then let's see where we are and leave the door open at that point for using some of the tools that, you know, she kept saying we have tools and, you know, she didn't describe most of them, but the 301 one is obvious. The national security tool is overused by Trump. That's obvious too. So I think her theory is let's start a dialogue and then we'll 
resort to the tools later, we'll see. You guys both do anticipate that they'll eventually launch a 301 investigation on Chinese goods, right? Well, I think they probably will because it's such a broad, it's a broad scale tool. It gives them it gives them opportunity to evaluate and 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 to address unfair practices that are not specifically part of the trade law. Uh, so that it's something you could not do in a WTO dispute or something like that. But I just want to point out that look, this is not easy. Okay, we're, we're no longer have the the China of of 1997 or 1998, which was using the external pressure for economic reform to conduct internal reforms and to to generate growth. China's China has different objectives at this point in time, and it's not really clear to me as just an outside observer what's actually going to work in this circumstance. So she's got her hands full. Well, and I'm I'm pessimistic about anything working because I think for the Chinese. This is not about economics, it's about politics. What we're asking them to do, which is to you know, transition to a market economy, basically, in their view, is going to undermine their control of the society because it's going to create free enterprise. It's going to create alternative centers of power. The last thing you know, the Communist Party of China is going to do is do things that create alternate centers of power. So I think it's, you know, it, it, when you start talking about the SOEs, uh, at least for the short term, it's a non-starter. Now, it, it's a fair point that, I mean, Xi Jinping is different from his predecessors because he's really taking the country back backwards on economics. He's taking them back to more state control. His predecessors, particularly John Zemin and Zhu Ranji, who were the people that brought WTO, uh, China into the WTO, they wanted China to become part of the Western trading system. They wanted it to liberalize. Uh, Ji devoted a good part of his time as premier to getting rid of SOEs. He obviously didn't succeed in getting rid of all of them, but he got rid of a bunch of them. Xi Jinping is going backwards. Now, you know, the next person, uh, I should say the next guy, because in China it always seems to be a guy, you know, he may be different. But then again, you know, Xi's amended the Constitution, so unless he dies unexpectedly, he's going to be around for a while. Ruler for life. I think we're stuck with his policies, which are emphasis on state ownership, state control of the economy, state-owned enterprises, and more subsidies, all of which are not good for us. Biden, I think, has been smart in recognizing that, you know, the way to combat that is get our guys in a better position. And I think he understands that, that the, you know, the field of battle is not going to be in China. The field of battle is going to be in Africa, in Latin America, in Europe, uh, in India, you know, in the Middle East, where we go up against them head to head. And that's where we have a fighting chance. The playing fields are more level there. You know, we don't have a fighting chance in China, and I don't think we're going to get one. So getting us ready for the larger competitive battle, I think, is the right thing to do. And it's, it's good that he's figured that out. Scott, last word. It's a tough job, but uh, I'm glad uh, Ambassador Tai is doing it, and I, th- I wish her success. Uh, it's a, a, as, we, as we've talked, uh, the domestic agenda is an important one. It's important that, that we, our economy recover, that we, we are at our best in terms of economic performance. Uh, that goes a long way toward making us competitive globally. And uh, in the meantime, I do have confidence that uh, she, she is a practical leader and will sort this out. Gentlemen, it has been a pleasure being back with you guys on The Trade Guys. Really 
interesting day here at CSIS with Ambassador Ty, and I'm glad you guys were around to chop it up afterwards and talk about it for our listeners. So thank you, and we'll see everybody next week. Thank you. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.